What is the price of the clothes and the food that we eat? Or chocolate bar we consume? Where it came from? And how did it get to be in the store for such a low price? And what is the cost of this environmentally, socially, and who is at the end of this chain? Reporters Michelle Michaels, Jodie Sidney, delve deeper into the costs on people, all for the price of a cheap t-shirt and a chocolate bar. Modern slavery, food and fashion fail. In this series, we will hear responses from businesses, local and international organisations who are trying to make change for those affected and a fairer and more sustainable supply chain. Nick Rono is an Australian human rights campaigner who heads the Freedom Fund, based in London. It's the world's first private donor fund dedicated to ending slavery. He's also the co-chair of the Joe Cox Foundation and a board member of Girls Not Brides, the global partnership to end child marriage. The Freedom Fund is a leading international organisation working to end modern slavery and human trafficking around the world. We were set up in uh, 2014 so just over six years ago, based in London, but we work in a number of countries that have a really high prevalence of slavery. So places like Nepal and India, Ethiopia, Thailand, Burma and Brazil. And I mean, I, I usually start when I talk about our work by saying a few words about what we mean by slavery, because a lot of people, when they're new to this issue, say, well, you know, wasn't slavery abolished in the 1800s? Um, but the fact is that there's some 40 million people in a form of slavery today, and that can be women and girls who are trafficked into brothels and forced to um, provide sex. It can be boys and men who are forced to work on fishing boats to catch the fish that ends up on our supermarket shelves. Whole families forced to work in mines in the Congo to produce the minerals that power our smartphones, and, and obviously families, children, women, girls, boys, men, etc., working in factories to make clothes or other products. So, you know, it's it's a hugely prevalent problem. And what we mean in this situation is not just that people are working under appalling conditions, right? that's bad enough in and of itself, but they're actually controlled through violence. So they can't leave of their own free will, because if they leave, they're threatened because they owe debts to the employer, illegal debts, um, or there's some other form of control. So that's what makes slavery different from um, other forms of exploitation, right? It's that level of control and violence. So, Nick, can you explain to us a little bit about what the core work of the Freedom Fund is? We're working in these. Um, our model is very much about working with local organisations on the ground. You know, we understand that the real expertise lies with local partners who are close to the communities in India and Nepal and elsewhere. And we work with these partners, we bring a whole group of uh, clusters of local NGOs together to drive change, right, to change the behaviour of officials, to get the police to do their jobs, to bring people out of families, out of stone quarries and brick kilns and factories, and then provide them with the support they need after that. How do you make those connections with those local organisations? Do you send people in? How do you get people to know you and trust you or trust the Freedom Fund? So we have expert staff based in the countries we work. Um, so if we're going to work somewhere, we kind of do a research mission to understand the forms of slavery, whether or not we can work there. But the key factor in our model is working with local civil society organisations, local community organisations. So we reach out to them. They already have the trust of communities they work with. So we work with them. 
we do an assessment of how capable they are, whether they can help us on the issues that we want to work on, whether they have their systems in place, because donors, including governments, trust us with their funding. So we also have to kind of do our own due diligence of our local partners. Do you help fund those organisations? So we're funding over 100 local NGOs in seven countries. And we're about 60 to 70% of the money we raise goes directly to funding those partners and the rest goes to our own operations and research and the due diligence and... um, Do you have a cost per year on how much it may cost to fund those NGOs? Yeah, so our total budget each year is $18 million US uh, and about $12 million of that goes directly to those partners, partners and research organisations. So we have made the assessment and our funders have made the assessment that the biggest change you can drive is by working with local partners. I, I mean, when I was new to this, and I've been in this space for about eight years now, but you know, before that, my experience was as a lawyer uh, and in government. And I had to get my head around, what does this mean? When I didn't have a lot of experience, I was thinking a lot about working with Indigenous communities in Australia, where we know that, you know, to drive real change, you have to work with Indigenous partners, so to, those that are close to the communities, those that understand all the challenges, those that are best placed to drive change. And our model really is no different, right? We understand that we don't have the expertise at the local level. What we have is the expertise to bring the resources in, bring partners together, encourage them to work together, to do the research that supports the analysis and everything else, but the actual work on the ground and work with the communities and work with local officials is done by our local partners. So how successful do you think this has been? Um, I think it's a really powerful model. Ideally, the work that is most successful is the grassroots work, isn't it? Even when you are working with governments and state authorities and NGOs, the real work to be achieved is when you're on the ground working directly with those people who are being affected. Well, if you don't do that work, none of the other work matters, right? I mean, you know, the thing about slavery is it's illegal everywhere. 40 million people are in slavery, so the laws are not being enforced. So it's one thing for governments to say, we ban slavery, we ban forced labour, we ban trafficking into brothels. And if you ask the governments, they'll probably say, oh, yeah, we're doing a pretty good job. So what you actually need to do is talk to those closest to the problems who say, well, in fact, no, because these corrupt, these co- officials are corrupt or these ones have different priorities or they're not doing raids or they're not supporting the victims. Um, and so you only know that. And again, you can use the lens, and I don't want to over-exaggerate the, the parallels, but, you know, in Australia, if you sit in Canberra, you probably don't know what's happening in, in the Pilbara, local communities and the challenges. So what you do is you work with local partners. The expertise that we can bring is the resourcing and the frameworks and the research and the strategy, uh, which is deeply informed by local partners. But in the end, the real work is done by, at the grassroots by local community organisations.
Australia's introduced its modern slavery bill in 2019. What do you think has affected the emergence of this legislation? Is there more ethical buying awareness amongst consumers or corporate practice? Do you think they're trying to be more responsible corporate citizens? Because there really has been an emergence, as you were saying, in the last few years. It has become much more um, prevalent to discuss the issue of modern slavery. What do you see as promoting that? Work like your organisations? Well, it's our organisations, but there are many that went before us. Um, and I think there's been a huge um, increase in awareness, particularly in the West. I mean, one of the really important kind of drivers of change was, in fact, comes out of Australia and uh, the Walk Free Foundation, founded by Andrew and Nicola Forrest, um, set up what they called a global slavery index, which actually measured how much slavery there is in the world and in each country. They started that in 2013. And that was groundbreaking and, and the data was really weak, but every year they've committed to improving it year on year. Yeah. And then governments can't hide from the, from the scale of the issue. There's a way then of drawing attention to the problem. And then underneath that, there's a lot of research about what governments are doing. So that's one critically important step. There's been lots of work with faith leaders around the world uh, and whether or not you're a person of faith, you know, billions of people around the world are. And so when you have the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury and Muslim leaders and um, Buddhist leaders and Hindu leaders and Jewish leaders and others all coming together in the Vatican in 2015, and again, Andrew Forrest played a key role in all of that, then suddenly you're raising this issue at a level that is very difficult to ignore. And then there's been a lot of amazing investigative research done, like the story I just said about the Thai fishing industry and the New York Times has done some great stuff and The Guardian. And so suddenly consumers in the West, who might have heard about it before, but suddenly they're also being confronted with the fact that their cotton shirts may have been produced with slavery in Southern India, or that their smartphones might be powered by minerals that have been produced by forced labor in the Congo. And so, and particularly, I think millennials, we as me as an older person often struggles with the kind of activism of millennials, but it's just been inspiring around awareness of where do your goods come from? How are they made? And how can I make a difference? You know, and I have a 14 year old daughter who now predominantly buy, and nothing to do with me, but predominantly buys her clothes secondhand, in part because she thinks it's fashionable, and in part because she thinks it's more sustainable, which it is. Those issues around human rights are much more prevalent now probably than they were 20 years ago. There's a whole range of issues that looking at those basic human rights and how people are treated, which all brings it into the, the sort of popular conscience. I think it's tremendously important and people are increasingly conscious of the environment, not just climate change, but the environment more broadly and things like plastics and pollution. And, and if you're worried about the environmental impact of your clothes or the things that you use, why wouldn't you be worried about whether or not slaves made your clothes or people in extreme exploitation made your clothes, right? And we're seeing those kind of issues come together. Uh, Black Lives Matter is resonating all around the world. It's resonating here in the UK. And what's been fascinating is it's a huge discussion of the legacy of slavery and the way it's influenced institutional racism. report by the anti-slavery organization that states 18 countries 
are exploiting children and workers for cotton, 17 countries for sugarcane, 15 countries for tobacco, and 14 countries for coffee. Malaysia, electronics, garments, and palm oil. The Philippines, bananas, coconuts, fashion accessories, fish, gold, rice, rubber, sugarcane, and tobacco. Cambodia, bricks, cassava, fish, meat, rubber, shrimp, salt, textiles, and timber. Thailand, fish, garments, shrimp, and sugarcane. Indonesia, fish, gold, palm oil, rubber, tobacco, sandals. The Freedom Fund has actually had some success with law in Thailand where the organisation helped affect legislation. Yeah, so in Thailand about six or seven years ago, I mean, it was a dirty secret that was not widely known, which was that the Thai fishing industry, which is huge, was basically run by forced labour for migrants from Cambodia and from Burma. And these workers on boats, they were tricked or forced onto boats and then treated horrifically, often working 20-hour days at a stretch. Sometimes the boat owners would pump them full of amphetamines to keep them going, lots of violence. If crew members got sick, really sick, then often they were thrown overboard because it was cheaper to dispose of the crew rather than going in to get them treatment. Right, So that was happening and it wasn't widely known and The Guardian and Associated Press did some amazing investigative reporting that not only highlighted that problem but also highlighted that this fish makes its way to our supermarket shelves. So there's a very direct connection. Um, and you don't need a direct connection but of course that often gets people in Australia or the US or whatever more kind of focused on the issue where they see that they are somehow connected to the problem. And the issue there was, how do you support these highly vulnerable workers? Migrants are often ignored by officials and law enforcement or treated horrendously. So they're often kind of operating underground. How do you draw attention to this? How do you lobby uh, the companies, including Western companies like, you know, Nestle and Miles and Walmart that source seafood from Thailand? How do you uh, encourage them to pay more attention? Because they all say that they're committed to making sure there's no slavery in their supply chains. But it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to actually take the concrete steps to drive change. How do organisations such as the Freedom Fund and non-government organisations promote that type of transparency within corporate cultures and organisations to ensure that there is transparency in their supply chains and they're not really just paying lip service to legislation? Yeah, well, we do it at a number of levels. One is we start speaking to local partners who say, despite what everyone is saying, we are being subject to slavery and forced labour. So you, you establish the facts on the ground and it's very hard to argue with that. So you document that, you report it, you publicise it, you speak to the media and then the government comes under pressure, the Thai government, uh, particularly in the Thai government's case under pressure from the European Commission and from the Americans who are saying, hey, if, if there are, you know, abuses uh, this widespread in your fishing industry, then we're going to start sanctioning you and restricting purchase uh, imports of um, seafood. So suddenly the Thai government thinks, wow, we've actually got to take this seriously. And then we're there with our partners to say, well, this is what you need to do. And at the same time, we're talking to the companies and saying, well, you companies say you're committed to making sure there's no slavery in the supply chains. Here it is. So what are you going to do about it? And when you say you're going to do this, why don't we talk to the organisations on the ground to make sure that this will actually make a difference? So it's a long process, right? It really is. But over the last five years, we've seen huge change in Thailand. The problem hasn't been eliminated, but compared to where we were five years ago, 
the Thai government has been pretty active. You know, there are proper checks done on boats to make sure that all of the crew have proper contracts and are being treated appropriately. There was a lot of pressure on the Thai government because it said we're doing things and we're saying, well, you're doing things, but we haven't seen a single conviction of a fishing boat owner or a company that uses forced labor. So, you know, it's not really serious until you show you're enforcing the law. And eventually they have had prosecu successful prosecutions. Right? So it's, there's, a, there's, I don't know if it's jargon, but there's a lot of talk in this space about systems and systems change. And, and, and the Thai fishing case is a perfect example because it's no point just working with the local partners and the fishing boats, right? Because you need the government to change the laws, you need the companies to change their practices. So you have to look at the whole system, the, the regulation, the government's practices, the policies, the, gov uh, the, the corporate practices, whether they're actually kind of doing what they say they're going to do. And then what's happening at the at the grassroots level with the fishing boats, with the food processing factories. So you've got to look at all of that and work out where your leverage is. And that's what we mean by systems approach. We'd like to thank Nick Grono from the Freedom Fund for speaking with us today. My name's Michelle Michaels. And we'd also like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation in Australia for funding this project. Thank you to Manasa for his beautiful Spanish guitar songs we've been listening to today.